Sorry, men, you, uh, you're the topic again this week. Hopefully you will be encouraged and you will feel rewarded for having been here today as we consider how we might love our wives better and in more profound ways. I want to say a brief word before I read, too, because it's very easy during these times to think, especially if you're a single person, uh, why even show up for church? Well, what's the point? I mean, he's just talking to married people. And what I want to say to you is, is there are some of you who aren't yet married, but you will be, and therefore it's obvious this is relevant for you. But I also want to say for those of you who, in God's providence, are not married, and there may be some in our midst that just are not called to marriage, and we praise the Lord for that. Paul actually celebrates that in Corinthians when he says it's best to stay as you are. If you can focus all your attention on Christ without the diversion of being married to a man or a woman, then that is good and honorable. And I want to say to you to think about this. If you haven't heard it thus far, you're going to hear it again today. Marriage is hard. Being a husband, being a wife is hard. It's hard because you dwell with another sinner. Well, that's something that's true for every person, single or married. And what I want you to realize is is that married people need to take note of single people to care for them, to be concerned for them, to watch over them, to encourage them in their lives, to see how you might pray for them and some of their struggles of temptation and other things, which may be related to their singleness and their desire not to be. But also, single people, you have a great responsibility as well. In some ways, you may have opportunities to devote yourself to prayer, to the scriptures, to activities of mercy, of outreach and mission, to which other people may have other obligations of child rearing and other such things which take up more of their time as Paul alludes to and you have an opportunity to be encouraging to help encourage people who are married not to feel like they're not really doing God's work when they give their time to their spouses and their children when they devote themselves to the other responsibilities they have you also have opportunities to encourage them just as Christians just to grow in grace, to let them know how God is working in your life as they hopefully turn to look to you. That's what it is to be a body of believers. We're not all called to the same station of life. And even when we're called to the same station in life, we're often not called at the same times. And so we need to see young, old, single, married, ebbing and flowing into one another's lives, encouraging and enriching one another because of the places that God has called you to at this particular time. You're not disadvantaged because you're married, nor are you disadvantaged because you're single. You just have different opportunities to be a blessing to other people and the Lord. I want to say that because I recognize over these, over these days that it can seem as if somehow single people are being neglected by the Lord, and that in fact is not the case. Well, if you have turned there, let's give attention to it. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is holy. It is powerful. Lord, it is able to transform, even this morning, hearts and minds. It is able to renew, revive, reform. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, 
that you know where each person that entered this building stands today, would you use your word to do the work that you would delight to do? And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you would stand with me as we give attention to God's word and honor it because it is God's word. Paul writes, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I didn't feel obligated to do this, but it just happened that this week as I was studying that the men haven't gotten their movie. And so here's your movie that, uh, that I want you to think about as you think about being men. I want you to think about The Princess Bride. And if you haven't ever seen The Princess Bride, well, you need to see that movie. It is, uh, it is an enjoyable, it's inconceivable for those of you who've seen it that you've not seen that movie. I want you to think about that movie in this light. And maybe you haven't thought about it this way before, but I want you to think about in The Princess Bride that Wesley and Buttercup know each other in their, in their very young years. And what is it that drives Wesley throughout his, out his life is true love. That's the whole spark of that movie is true love. And you might think, if you were watching that in a rather casual way, that what really is driving Wesley is Buttercup. But you'd be wrong. See, what's driving Wesley is a commitment to true love. And Buttercup benefits. Buttercup benefits. But if you notice all through the movie... Every time something comes up where there's an obstacle, Wesley always says, nothing can stop true love. It's obvious that there is a force, true love, which is greater than all other obstacles. And while certainly this movie was not written as a Christian movie per se, if you really get that, I think there's a principle you begin to see that helps us as we look at this passage this morning. What I want you to think about is this. True love is the ultimate object of Wesley's affection, as I said before. And this is the idea. The object of the heart's affection shows forth the worth of the action. Now, let me say that again. The object of the heart's affection, so whatever you've placed your affections on, shows forth the worth of your action. Does that make sense? Wherever your heart has placed its affection will then make the value of what you do obvious. In other words, if you have a low object, the worth of your action is low. If you have a high, exalted object, the worth of your action is great. Now, I'm going to unpack that and hopefully help us understand it a little better, but maybe John Piper says it in a way that will make it make sense. John Piper says, Love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God which gladly meets the needs of others. Let me say that again. Love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. 
Now, there's a sense in which, before I leave Wesley, that if you really get it, if you really understand it, Wesley is completely enraptured with the concept of true love. It is a lofty object for one to place one's affection on. And if we as Christians realize that God is the author, He is in His very character love. It's something that He doesn't have to conjure up. It is who He is in His very being then you begin to understand that if you really love the one who is true love, the one who is holy and right and pure and powerful, then understand how that begins to change the worth of your actions and the way you act. So with that in mind, I want us then to look at three different things out of this passage this morning. Paul writes and says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. What I want you to think about then is this, that this is the first point, the matter of love. And I want you to think about this idea of the matter of love. It's not just that love matters. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm really getting at a concept here of that love has matter to it. It's not just some concept out here. And it's not just a verb in the sense that it's action. What I want you to think about is, is that love is something that is tangible. It's real. It can be grabbed hold of. And lots of times what you find with people, and my own children have struggled with this. I, from time to time, struggle with this. I have conversations with some of you and know that some of you struggle with this. And here's the idea. I just wish Jesus could just be here and hug me. I just wish I could sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. I just wish that God would speak to me like He did to Moses or to Abraham or to David or to one of the prophets. If He'd just talk to me, it'd be better. It would make more sense. It would somehow, I would be able to wrap my hands around it because I could wrap my arms around Him. But what I want you to understand that Paul is trying to get us to understand in this passage is this. That all around you is the reality of Christ. That as you begin to touch each other in appropriate ways and care for one another in appropriate ways, that you actually are experiencing the reality of Christ around you. Too often, we want to think that if we had the actual reality in front of us, the way we'd like to have it, that it would be more real. The problem is, is that Jesus somehow confronts us all through the Gospels that that's not the case. Because He says that when you have Me in word and sacrament, you have Me in some sense almost better, at least in the interim time, because of My Spirit's work through those things, than you did when I was on the planet. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus could only touch and talk to so many people. He was a man. But His Spirit is everywhere. In every one of His people. Working, speaking, enlarging, transforming His people. And so the reality is that we need to begin to understand that I want you to understand, when we talk about spiritual things, that we're not talking about anti-matter. We're not talking about stuff that's out here floating. We're talking about real, tangible things. It's not necessarily Jesus in the flesh Himself, 
But Jesus says it's something almost better, at least for this time. And that is that you have one another. That matter matters. This confronts two things for us in our modern society. It confronts materialism, which says that matter is everything. And see, Jesus confronts that, that matter is not everything. That the reality is that sometimes you have to sacrifice the stuff in order to see reality advanced, i.e., Jesus went to the cross, suffered, died, denied himself, took on human flesh, left the glories of heaven. You understand what I'm saying? He basically said material matters, but it's not the big matter. The other thing it confronts is Platonism or Gnosticism or asceticism, which says what you've got to do is get the matter out of the way so you can really get spiritual. If we could just get rid of these earthly shells, then we could really commune with God. The problem is, is that Scripture constantly confronts that idea with saying that our bodies matter. Why resurrect bodies if they're a shell that, you, that is entrapping you and keeping you from experiencing freedom? Somehow, Scripture seems to think that our souls and bodies together is better than a disembodied soul. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, this is a horrible tragedy of the fall, that while it is better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, what's even better is to have my body fully redeemed to be standing with Jesus together in a completed body and soul united once again together. And so what I want you to begin to think about is, is that in all of this, what Paul has been trying to say all through Ephesians is this. The body, the physical people of God matter. It's not just about you standing off and having a nice Bible study and being in communion with Jesus and feeling really good about it. In fact, what Paul would say to you is, is that if that's all you're doing, you miss the boat. Because love has to have an object to which it is expressed. And what Jesus is confronting in this passage through the Apostle Paul is this idea that loving your neighbor as yourself is tantamount to understanding the gospel. What the matter of love is when it comes to a husband and a wife is, and what is being said here is that when a man looks at his wife, he should say, this is the neighbor of neighbors. She's the first neighbor that matters. And there's a sense in which if you're a man and other people think you're great and your wife doesn't, you've got a problem. If you've been being everybody else's neighbor but failing to be hers, you've got a problem. That's what the matter of love is here. Is that you actually are called to express in tangible ways, in real time and space, to this being next to you, you matter greatly. Who you are, what you are, your character matters. And because it matters so much to God, it matters so much to me. See, that's what Paul's trying to work here. Is do you really see the value of your spouse? And ultimately the hope is that if you get that as a married person, all of a sudden your coworker, your neighbor next door, the checkout counter person, you see if you start to love this person, 
hopefully that starts to overflow into other people because they're your neighbors too. You see, once again, marriage becomes this great sanctifying process whereby you are being called to love a person not just as you love yourself. See, you'd be wrong if you take from this passage, and I've taken it this way before, so when I say you're wrong, don't, don't, that's not because I'm so brilliant and you're not. I'm just saying it's very easy to read this passage and think what Paul's talking about here is, well, love your wife like you love yourself. Love her body like you love your body. But that's not what's really being gotten at here. What's really being gotten at here is back to Genesis. When you look at your wife, you're supposed to say, that is my body. That is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's me. So to neglect her is to neglect myself. And you see Paul's logic then. No man neglects himself. No man denies himself food, denies himself pleasure, denies himself things. He takes care of those things. And in fact, if he doesn't do those things, most of society looks at him and says, what's wrong with that guy? Why didn't he get a haircut? Why didn't he? You see the logic. Most people think about these things logically. It says, if you look at your wife as this other person, you fail to understand what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is that's you. When you look at your wife, you should think, me, because that's what she is. She's bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And Paul says, if you would actually love your wife, you have to love her because she's you. And whatever you would think about doing for you, how could you neglect that for yourself and her? Does that make sense? Now think about all the ways. And we could talk about, and I talked about last week a lot more, and if you weren't here, you can, get, you can listen to it online. I talked more about the physical needs of caring for our wives. But this is what I want to talk about this week because I think it's directly applicable here. I then want to come to this point here of the struggle of love. And that's our second point. Here's part of the problem for us as men, and let's face it. We often don't do a good job of taking care of ourselves. You understand what I'm saying? We often don't do a good job of taking care of ourselves, which realize where that bleeds over to. We don't care for our physical health. We don't care for our emotional health. We just continue to plow through, suck it up and be a man. Well, while you're sucking it up and being a man, guess who else is being affected? yourself in the weaker vessel. And that begins to become a problem. We are called in this passage to nourish and cherish our wives. This is what that requires in us, men. It requires you to openly and actively deal with your sin. You have to deal with your sin. If you don't deal with your sin, guess who gets the beneficiary of that? Your spouse. Because she has to live with your sin connected to her. How can you possibly help her to grow and be a more godly person if the person that's feeding and nourishing her is someone who's not growing in godliness? You have to deal with your sin. You have to face it head on. You have to be willing to say, I struggle here, here, and here. Now let me be careful about what I'm saying. I am not suggesting, and I want to say this on the front end, Please, men, have enough sense to realize that just because your mind goes to the sewer does not mean you have to drag that dear saint next to you into the sewer with you. 
what you need to do is be able to go to the Lord and go to some other close men and have real conversations about real struggles you really have and deal with it. That's how you protect her and that's how you nurture her because you begin to grow and be a man who takes sin head on, which then makes you better equipped to, guess what, help her with her sin and help her, if God has blessed you with children, deal with their sin. If you don't deal with yours, you just pollute the whole pool. Because it starts with you. You're the head. You're the foundation. And if, oh, we all know in a house that the foundation's cracked. It doesn't matter how, much, how more beautiful the rest of the house is. The foundation's bad. So men, we must deal with our sin. The second thing that I want us to look at in that then is it requires us to cultivate our relationship with Christ. It's not just enough to say, okay, I need to be a better person. I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to realize I'm doing this bad thing or that bad thing. I'm addicted to this game on the computer or I'm addicted to this particular website or whatever it is that you find yourself being compelled towards. The idea then is, is that we are to take time to say, I need to spend time with Jesus if I would help my wife be a godly person. I guess what I'm trying to say in some ways, men, is it shouldn't be any surprise to you if you don't nurture and cherish your wife that she finds it very difficult to submit. See, you're not, set, you're not setting before her a means to which she can grow in godliness, and therefore often she will find it very hard, not just because she doesn't want to submit, but because we've already talked about the fact that for all of us, submission is a real battle because our hearts often want to do what they want to do the way they want to do it, when they want to do it. And that's true for every single person in here. So if you're not battling it in yourself, how can you be setting an example and helping her to battle it inside herself? So it shouldn't be shocking when she struggles when you're not in the struggle. Simply put, you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot only drink from the water fountain and basically spew out water on, on the fires of sin in your world. What is required is that you be a tributary or a stream flowing from the springs of living water. That's what's required. You have to really believe that what, John, what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that out of you will flow springs of living water. Out of you. Each one of us, but especially as husbands, realize that you begin to come a place where that begins to flow out into the rest of your family's life. You have opportunities to bless your wife and your children and other members of your family as you begin to know God better, understand the gospel more profoundly, confront your sin with greater boldness. See, in some ways, men, what we have to look at our sin is the same way as Joshua looked across the city of Jericho. Sin is like that. There are giants in your heart. Without going too far down the line with that, because I don't like that type of theology too far. But you do need to recognize that there is a reality going on, and we have to realize that we're not sitting on the sidelines hoping something good will happen. 
We're called to be men in action, hating that which destroys and pollutes and perverts God's kingdom, starting with our wives. Not as that which pollutes and perverts, although they are sinners too, but rather with our sin, recognizing we need to be nurturing and cherishing them. Another thing I want us to consider as we think about struggling in love is you cannot do this for your wife. If you do it for your wife, you will fail. If you do it for your wife, here's the problem. If she dies, or if you decide she's not the best thing going, you'll just look for another object. See, because ultimately she cannot be an ultimate object. She's not that which life flows from. She needs life just like you do from another source. And so if you make her the reason why you're doing what you're doing, you will either idolize her memory if she dies, you'll make an idol of that, or you will basically continue to go from object to object to object. If she dies, if she leaves you, if you get tired of her and leave her, you're just moving from object to object to object. You will never succeed in that effort. The second thing you have to be wary of in this is you cannot do it just because it's your duty. You can't just say, what's well, my obligation to do it? If that's the reason why you do it, you will fail. And here's the reasons why. is because it will ultimately be seen in you in pride in one of two ways. Either you will be arrogant because you'll say, look at what a great job I'm doing loving my wife. Watch me love my wife. Or you will be filled with self-pity, which constantly looks and says, if only my wife and other people could appreciate all the great ways I love them. Look at all the ways I sacrifice and look at all the things I do. Doesn't anybody really appreciate it? And don't you realize that self-pity is just the backside of arrogance? It's the same thing. It's just seen in a different way. One says, look how worthy I am. The other says, you're not seeing how worthy I am. And this is our struggle, men. Because one of the things we long for more than anything else is for people to say, you're a great guy. You're worthy. You matter. You're awesome. I'm glad to be connected to you. There's not a man in this room that doesn't like it when someone says, you're a good guy. Boy, I'm sure glad to have you around as a friend, as a partner in this thing. All of us want that. And if we make that the object and the reason why we ultimately are, com are committing ourselves to an idol rather than the living God, who is worthy and makes us matter. See, He feels that need when we seek Him. The final point I want us to look at then is the hope of love. What we need to realize is we cannot do this until we begin to see and believe all that Jesus has done for us. We can't, man. We never will. The first thing I want you to think about is everywhere you fail, if you're a Christian, Christ prevails. If you're a Christian man and you're struggling today, you feel awkward, inadequate, frustrated. What you need to begin to see and believe is, is that everywhere you may fail, Christ prevails. It doesn't mean you say, okay, I'm just going to step back and let God... I'm letting go, God. You love my wife. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying to you is this, that as you strive and struggle to do these things, you need to believe and trust 
that even when you stumble and fall and fail to do it the way you know you ought to do it, Christ is prevailing in two ways. One, He loves your wife dearly and is going to use even your failures to make her the woman He desires to be. And secondly, He loves you dearly. And He's going to use even your failures to grow you into the man you want to be and that He has called you to be. And the problem often for us is is that we don't really believe that. And the reason why we don't believe it is because we really don't see what Christ has done for us. We really don't see it. We really don't value it. And if you begin to look here at this passage again, look at what it says. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See, the rootedness of this and the ability for you to love your wife as your own body is rooted in you believing that Christ loves you that way perfectly. He never fails. I want you to listen to what Luther says in Freedom of the Christian about this. Christ, that rich and righteous bridegroom, takes as a bride a needy and wicked harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in Him, and since she has in her bridegroom, Christ, a righteousness which she may claim as her own, and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, and saying, If I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. All mine is His, and all His is mine. And then he quotes from the Song of Songs, My beloved is mine, and I am His. What I want you to begin to see then is this. What Luther's saying is that whatever you believe about Jesus and the degree to which you begin to own that is true, as you begin to say, if that's true of Jesus and I'm in union with Him, I'm a member of His body, that's true of me. Jesus is perfect. What's Paul saying to you? Then, then you get Jesus' perfection. Jesus is righteous. Then that righteousness is your righteousness. Jesus never fails to love. Then that reality is true for me as well. It's true. That's how He treats me. That's what He does for me. And if I begin to believe that with a whole heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, I will begin to be a different man. I can't help but be a different man. Because see, the reality is if I really believe that, then the object of my affection has now been put squarely on God. And what does God delight in? Seeing me delight in Him. That means that I won't be failing. Life may be hard. I may lose my job. The cars may die. The riches may go. But you can't take God away. And see, we have to be a people that believe that. That if everything else goes, but I've got Jesus, I've got more than anyone else around me who was without Him. And see, the struggle as men is that we find that sometimes hard to believe. But the hope of love is this, that it's true, that you really are loved like that, you really do matter that much. Jesus loves you so much that He died for you. 
that He gave up everything in heaven to come and be one of you. Do you understand that, men? You can let go of all your possessions, not because you're such a great guy, but because you worship a Savior who gave it all up. He gave the portfolio and left it at the gates of heaven, and He came to be one of us. A poor man who didn't even have a stone to lay his head on. Why? So that you'd be set free to love. That's how great His love is. That's how much He values you. And if you can begin to grab hold of that, then you will be a person that can look at your sin and say, it's not that it's not ugly. It's not that it's not bad. It's not that it's horrendous. But that's a dragon my Jesus can kill. And I will not be afraid. I will not be undaunted. I will be just like Joshua and say, I will be strong and very courageous because God has told me that even this sin, even these things can be defeated because of what He has done on the cross. We may struggle all our days, but those things cannot prevail against the children of God. And as men, that needs to be our hope. In conclusion then is this. If we see that really loving God, seeing the pleasure, the treasure, the joy that is, that is ours in Him, then it will transform our affections. It will transform our minds. It will transform our wills. We will have gained what cannot be lost because we have gained God Himself. And we cannot help but seek His glory and our joy in loving others. See, it becomes a joy to love other people. See, it becomes, to go back to Wesley, it's like this. What is getting the life sucked out of you when what you have is heaven? When what you have is Jesus? And here's the beautiful thing. While Wesley was only mostly dead, Jesus went all the way. He went all the way to death for you. And what I would like for you to do this week is to think about that. To ask God to give you a delight in that that you have never known before. And may that enrich and empower you, not only through this next week, but throughout all the days of your life. May God make it so in our midst, I pray. Amen.